This is Fiber Variety Hour, an eclectic mashup of fiber obsession, interviews, random silliness, and discussion surrounding all aspects of the fiber community and industry. In each episode, you'll find everything from farm features to fabulous festivals. You can find us on social media platforms as Fiber Variety Hour, that's fiber with an R-E, as well as our Patreon platform. Our presenting sponsor is the Tip of the Mitt Fiber Fair held each year on the first weekend of June at the Emmett County Fairgrounds in beautiful Petoskey, Michigan. The mission of the festival is to celebrate Michigan's natural fiber, farmers, processors, skilled artists. In early 2016, a group of like-minded fiber enthusiasts began planning an event to showcase Michigan's rich natural fiber resources. With a lot of hard work and the support of local businesses and organizations, the annual Tip of the Mitt Fiber Fair was born. You can follow them on Facebook at Mitt Fiber Fair or on Instagram as at Tip of the Mitt Fiber Fair. We did have a few connection issues in this episode and they did affect the sound quality somewhat, but we do think you'll enjoy this interview with Ellen as much as we did. This is Fiber Variety Hour, and we're here with Ellen Zawada from Wool and Fiber Arts. Welcome, Ellen. Hello. It's nice to see you guys today. It's good to see you, too. Although no one else is getting to see you. We just get to see you. So I know that you really want to talk about WAFA, but I thought that we could maybe start off. I'd really like to hear more about your background and your farm. Absolutely. Um, I was a typical farm kid. I grew up only about 20 minutes from where I live right now. Uh, I grew up on a homestead type environment. So my parents, uh, my grandparents owned a farm right off a main road. So on a corner, my parents bought property off the back of the family farm. And where my grandparents were at, there were actually three homes. So my great aunt lived in one house. My grandparents were in the other house. My uncle and his brand new wife were in the third house. So my summers, my weekends were spent with all the aunts and uncles, all of the cousins, all of my great aunts, children and their families. Um, the family farm was no longer a commercial farm. When my dad was growing up, it was a dairy, but they also grew cucumbers and green beans commercially for companies like Velasic. That was long gone, but they were still growing a lot of their own food. So my uncle, you know, there's pigs and chickens, so I was that crazy horse girl. My life revolved around horses. Um, we did family vacations on horses, uh, everything in my life. That's what I was known for at school was the horses. But we had all sorts of farm animals. We raised, uh, you know, our gardens were acres <laughs> because all of the extended family was coming over. So we would have parties where we were like uh, picking and cleaning green beans, snapping green beans. Uh, you know, everybody would come over to can and everybody would take some home with them. You know, that was the fun thing, or we'll say fun in quotes, <laughs> uh, for me was that I was doing the same thing at my house. And then I had to go over to grandma's house <laughs> and do it also. Um, but yeah, that's, that was my childhood of, you know, raising much of our own food, uh, learning the basics of foraging. We were always going out and picking wild grapes and huckleberries. And we spent quite a bit of time in Northern Michigan. My grandparents had a cabin up there. We still call it the cabin, even though it's like a three bedroom home now. Um, oh, wow. Where my, in Northern Michigan? They're in Lovells, Michigan. So Gaylord, uh, Gladwin, kind of that area. Just a hop, skip um, and a jump over from me. Yep, exactly. And now my parents live there full time. They, my grandparents had sold their house and they did the typical Michigan thing where in the summers they went up north and in the winters they went to Florida or Arizona. And uh, my parents sold off the last of the family farm, I think it was about three or four years ago, and they moved up there full time. So they live up there now. Um, my husband and I met in high school. Uh, we were high school sweethearts. We worked at the local McDonald's together. <laughs> We've been together ever, yeah, ever since, over 20 years now. Um, and we lived in town when we first got married. But oh, man, I was miserable. And when I say town, I'm talking like I think we had one stoplight, maybe two. At <laughs> and I was just absolutely miserable. I mean, there was never a doubt 
that um, I wanted to be back on a farm again. That just, it, it was never a doubt. Um, I was a maker from day one. Both of my grandmothers crocheted and knit. So did my mother. Uh, sewing and painting and anything creative. My mother whittled, <laughs> was a woodworker. My dad, you know, all of the same thing. So I was surrounded with it from day one. And I don't even remember the exact moment. I don't remember exactly how old I was when I learned to crochet, but that's what I learned to do first. And I probably was only eight or nine years old at the most. And it's possible younger, but it was my grandma that I live next door to. She's the one that started me in crocheting because she actually was a production crocheter. She worked a full-time job and her side job was as a production crocheter while doing all the gardening and all of that stuff too. Um, but I remember, I distinctly remember her teaching me to do a chain stitch and I would just sit there and, you know, like, <laughs> you know, 20 foot long chain stitch. And once she saw that I was consistent making a chain, then she taught me to do granny squares. And I have no idea where those granny squares are, or what happened to them, but it, it, I literally went right from making granny squares, doing nothing with them other than making multiple right into making the fancy like Irish style fancy doilies you know so just right into it yeah yeah and then by the time I was 13 14 I was making the fisherman style afghans you know that would take like 300 hours to make <laughs> because I couldn't make it to pattern I had to make it larger <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, because my mom had got into making that. So, you know, everything in our house, our dining room table, the side table, everything was covered in crochet. You go to grandma's house and, you know, the toilet paper, little, the girls and the cheap red heart type yarn on the, she literally had the girls with their fancy little dresses over the toilet paper on the back of her toilet. She had like the little seat covers all in crochet. The hats and everything on the dolls, like yeah. the whole... Yes, this like the sunbonnet style. Oh, yes. wow. So that was the beginning of my fiber arts journey was from very, very young. I can remember teaching adults to crochet. I wasn't even double digits yet. Um, I was just, yeah, I was, but I never touched good yarn. You know, we were going to Kmart <laughs> and buying yarn. Um, never, never touched anything, you know, a high quality yarn until I was into my 30s. Well, I say that. But I was exposed to spinning ah. um, not long after, 10 or 11 years old. Uh, we ended up becoming very, very good friends to um, a family that only lived a couple miles away from us. And she raised Angora rabbits and she had an Ashford traditional spinning wheel. And it was one of those things like the parents were best friends. I was best friends with the daughter. My sister was the same age as their youngest son. We used to go on family vacations together with the horses. See, we travel all over the state with the horses doing trail rides. We did the Michigan shore to shore ride twice together. And I would sit there and watch her go out and help with the rabbits and, uh, you know, go through help feed and water. And they built this big, beautiful barn for all of the rabbits. But I never had the nerve to ask her to teach me to spin. I looked at that spinning wheel and I'm like, that is some magical thing. There's no way an adult is going to allow a child to touch that. Oh. And I can remember they lived in like a 150 year old uh, farmhouse mm -hmm. and they had opened it all up. So you could see the bare wood beams and it was just absolutely gorgeous with the spinning wheel sitting right there on the edge of the living room. It was always sitting there. And I can remember being down in the living room and Bobby Kay and I are sitting on the couch and we're doing whatever girls that age do. And out of the corner of my eye, I'm watching her mom spin, but I don't want to look directly at her. <laughs> it's interesting because it sounds like you, I mean, you just really drawn to that at a very young age and kind of yeah. circled back around to it. Would that be? Yeah. Um, I always wanted to learn how to knit and uh, Mrs. Frettenborough, so Bobby Kay's mother, actually tried to teach me to knit. And I could just never retain it. My mother tried to teach me to knit. I could never retain it. Now, by this time, I'd probably already been crocheting, you know, five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, 2008, obviously, we had the economic downturn here in Michigan. Mm -hmm. My husband and I both worked for the same company, an automotive supplier. 
Um, and the company went from almost 800 employees down to 120. Wow. And the stress was so bad. I actually left before I would have been laid off. And I took the summer off to be with my kids. Um, and I said, you know what? I'm going to teach myself to knit. That was my one thing for the summer. I wanted to spend the summer with my kids and I wanted to teach myself to knit. So I went up to the local library and I checked out the book, Stitch and Bitch. Went <laughs> to Jola Ann's, bought some cheap metal needles, <laughs> city needles. And I said, I'm just, I'm going to figure it out. I, I've always wanted to know my entire life. I'm going to figure it out. And now, after so many people tried. And then I found out about Continental. Well, come to find out, they had been trying to teach me to throw. There it is. With being a crocheter for somebody. And I had no clue that there were different ways of being able to hold your tension, hold your yarn. I had no clue until I checked out that book. And that book was just amazing for me, the way that the information was presented, the the pictures that were included, um, you know, and I was in my early 30s, so kind of the attitude and the feel of how it was written just spoke to me. And yeah, I, I haven't put down my knitting needle since. <laughs> that was in 2008. Um, we already had horses and chickens, and I actually sold at farmer's markets for quite a few years. We were doing heirloom organic vegetables and selling at the farmer's market, pasture-raised chickens and turkeys, and I was raising rare endangered uh, breeds of poultry from the Livestock Conservancy list. And I knew that I wanted to add sheep. Um, I had always kind of wanted sheep, but it just never really happened. And so we started researching the different breeds on the Livestock Conservancy list. Um, and that's when I found the Ramadale CBMs. And we brought our first sheep home in 2011. I researched, I researched breeds for probably two years. Um, and now it just, it was the right breed for us. There were some really good breeders here in Michigan with really good sheep. Um, and they were able to, uh, two different farms worked with us so that we kind of had a brought home, originally brought home four ewes and one ram. Um, and since then we've added uh, new bloodlines from the West Coast. I hear that once you start with a couple of sheep, it doesn't really end there. <laughs> no. <laughs> I no. hear this among many different um, animal farmers saying, oh, well, we're just going to get a couple. Well, our intention had always been to be uh, preservation breeders. So we knew right from the beginning that it wasn't going to be just for sheep, that that was the foundation mm -hmm. for us. Um, and we don't bring new ewes in, we bring a new ram in every few years that um, from farms that have uh, the same type of management is what we want that are breeding for the same things that we're looking for. Um, um, tracking and records keeping and that kind of thing just to keep everything straight. I, I think my eyes would probably cross. That stuff isn't too bad. Um, oh. We have grown very, very slowly. We did that on purpose. Um, I bred rare breed poultry for many years. And one of the things you hear in poultry, which uh, most of the poultry people I know are, are really um, big on is you only keep the top 10%. That's it. If you want to quickly improve your flock, you only keep the top 10% at most. So that's what we did with the sheep. So that's why our flock grew very, very uh, slowly. So that first year, we kept one ewe. That was it. The next year, I think one ewe. I think we even had a year where we didn't keep any at all. Now I might keep two or three back. But we're at the point now where our original four ewes are retiring. And then we're going to be into where those first lambs that we kept back are ready to retire here in just another year or two. And I believe right now I'm up to, uh, there's 20, 25 ewes out there. Um, they don't really earn their place until they've lambed once or twice. It's so interesting so, to, to hear you say all that too, because um, I was just out at a, like, that's what I was getting home from today was helping someone skirt fleeces. 
and they're also lambing right now you know it's it's that time of year and they just they couldn't skirt as they sheared it was it kind of snuck up on them and so she is not as knowledgeable about the fleece so as we were going through them i was talking to her about it you know and um i'd like to hear you know some of the things you were looking for in the quality of the fleece too because you know you say the lambing is i mean that i know that's a big factor but i'd love to hear your take on the fleece too well, for us, the last um, couple of years, we actually prioritize the body of the sheep over fleece um, because that's where I felt we needed the most improvement. Our wool was nice, but we really needed improvement in the confirmation. So we brought in a ram uh, from uh, custom colored critters and from corn. Oh, so some of the things that I felt we needed the most improvement on was our, our sheep were actually down in the front end. Sometimes when you select for one specific thing, say fleece quality, you lose other things. And I felt that, you know, fleece is important, mm -hmm. but if that sheep is not strong, where they can thrive physically in their health, what good does it do to have nice fleece? <laughs> Right. I hope that I hope that makes sense. It I does. Mean, I I I kind of knew what you meant, but you know, we're we're reaching all different people, and I think that that's a really valuable thing for people to understand. Is it's not just that they can have healthy lambs; it's also that they can they have a healthy body. Really, is what you're saying. You know that they don't have exactly. Some, yeah. I want I want my sheep to live a long and full life. I want them to be strong and healthy. You think about things. Um, I'm somebody that if I was a horse, nobody would allow me to reproduce uh, because I've got bad knees. I've got bad ankles. I've got bad hips. It just makes my life a little bit more difficult. And as you age, it wear, that wear and tear because they don't line up is more difficult. And we really need to think about animals the same way. I believe as somebody that has made the choice to breed animals uh, coming from a biology background that it is my responsibility to select animals that are going to be the healthiest, that can live the longest life, that don't need a lot of human intervention other than making sure they have food and water. I want to make sure that, you know, as they age, that their knees don't start to hurt, that their shoulders don't start to hurt. Uh, just because they're aging as much as, as possible. It really is the survival of the fittest. And when we add human intervention into it to domestic breeds, sometimes we really mess up. <laughs> you think of dogs like pugs and boxers and boxers are my absolute love of dogs. You know, some of the decisions we've made as humans is not really the best for the animal. Um, and so I really take that, that responsibility. I think that is extremely important to make decisions and that's why we really only keep such a small percentage of the ewe lambs back. Um, and those were things that I really felt we had to prioritize um, making improvements in our flock. Um, and especially, like I said, that the front end, they were kind of narrow in that they had lovely fleece, but they were narrow in the chest. Their, their backs were not nice and straight. And that's going to wear and tear on their front end as they age. So I would love to have ewes that 13, 14 years old and are still frolicking around the pasture. So we're making decisions based on that, even if we may need to take a step back on the fleece to begin with. And we brought in this absolutely amazing ram. Um, his fleece was not as fine as I would have liked, but it was beautiful. He had the density. Um, it was more consistent over his entire body, but he had the structure that we were looking for and man, did he give that to his babies. So we kept back you lambs out of him. And then last fall, we brought in a new ram from Foggy Bottom Boys out in California. And that ram has the fleece and has the body. <laughs> Plus they are also, uh, their management style is very similar to what we want. We're in the beginning stages of transitioning our farm to regenerative agricultural. Um, we're still learning where they are well, well down that path. And to me, what when I say regenerative agriculture, what I mean is making dis management decisions based on improving the health in the soil. 
And by improving the health of the soil, of the soil, that's also going to improve the life of the animals that live on it. That's going to be both our domestic animals and the wildlife, the local wildlife. We want to live hand in hand. We want a place. We have three fox dens on our, we have a very small farm, but we have three fox dens right now on our farm. And that's fine. We're not losing any poultry because we have livestock guardian dogs. And that's the way I just, I want to live with nature as much as possible. I want my land to be better tomorrow than it is today. What a great entire philosophy. I mean, the, just the quality of life improvement for the animals and for yourself vicariously because of what you're doing. Cause it sounds like it's really just invigorates you as well. But the, that, that thought process that we sometimes lose in large production of whatever it is we're producing of really looking down to the nitty gritty of what makes this life better and happier and healthier. And that's just, I don't know. I just, I love the entire, <laughs> I love hearing it so much. Me too. It really has become my passion. That <clears throat> whether it's the land, the animals, the people that we come in contact with every day, mm-hmm. what can we do to brighten up that moment? Really what can we do to have a positive impact? Yup. It's a stewardship. You're exactly really, really digging deep into the stewardship. Exactly. And yeah, it, it is my passion. It's what keeps me going. It's what gives me the spark in my eye and little skip in my step. <laughs> it's funny because I'm approaching 50 and I feel more invigorated today than I did at 30. That's fantastic. The fact that you had such a background in how important growing your own food was obviously has informed what you're doing today too. And I feel like that sense of community obviously has come through for you as well, considering that you founded a very large group on Facebook. Absolutely. And that's what has made WAFA so successful is the feeling of community within the group. I mean, this last month has blown me away. This is our one year anniversary. And I don't know if you've had a a chance to take a look, but each morning we have a post that's scheduled to go up with a different topic, just celebrating our anniversary and asking people to share their memories, their favorite stories, little tidbits, share a little bit of their heart uh, each day. And reading through those, I'm like, oh, I'm going to cry. I'm humbled. I'm amazed. And it, it makes me choke up a little bit because the, the outpouring of love, um, both from, we call them our audience, both from our audience, our community within WAFA, and from the vendors themselves that have participated over the last year. It, uh, who would have thought um, that you could create that on Facebook of all places? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is, um, we have a private group that's for the vendors only. And some of the posts that have been in there this past week, I've had other vendors sending me messages like, did you see that? Did you read that? I'm crying right now of vendors reaching out to other vendors to offer them emotional support. Um, we've had people you know, like myself that have had COVID uh, that have gone in, that have lost jobs over the last year, that have had health crises over the last year, that, you know, things haven't gone the way they hoped to, and other vendors step up to check on them, to call them, to send them messages, to help support them as they were going through whatever it was they were going through. And it's, it's just been an absolutely amazing and humbling experience. So you've said Wafa, but because we didn't really introduce it, um, you should probably, uh, you know, Wafa stands for Wool and Fiber Arts, but do you want to give a little bit more background on what Wafa really is and how it got started and how it's evolved? Absolutely. Um, Our farm is very small. I normally only vend at two small local events uh, each year, Blake's Orchard has a fiber festival every Labor Day. And then in the fall, there's the Thumb Fiber Festival. So I don't normally vend in the spring or the summer because just that uh, financial output of trying to get product together and mill timing and all of that. But I have many, many friends uh, here in Michigan that 
normally do the shows in the spring. That, you know, that in April, they're down in, uh, it's Ann Arbor. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the fiber festival. Um, I was very active in fiber crafty, which Pam is one of the people that helps plan in North Carolina. And so I'm on Facebook, I'm in my fiber arts groups, you know, last March, April, and I'm reading posts about people that their all their shows were being canceled. Um, and a couple of close friends of mine that, you know, they depend on that income to make sure that they can have hay for the season, that they can, you know, feed all of their animals, that whatever plans uh, that they had, those finances are extremely important. And I'm watching shows cancel all over the, I mean, we know what happened last spring. At that time, I had joined a uh, Facebook entrepreneur group that was specific for creatives. Uh, it's called the Social Divas. And I was learning more and more about taking your business online, social media, marketing, and selling live. And Daniel Wentz of uh, Iron Wheel Farm, she's in Northern Michigan. She was one of the people that I, I was really watching her post and she had built up inventory for YarnCon and all of a sudden it was canceled. And on April 10th, I'm just like, okay, I just feel I don't normally have an inventory. I'm not normally worried about this. So I actually have the time and have the knowledge. How can I help? And so I started talking to my business mentor telling her what was going on. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and just the timing in my head, I'm like, uh, I started the group on April 10th and we hosted our first show two weeks later. And originally I was thinking like 12 hours on a Saturday, 24 vendors, if we can find enough people that want to participate. And then the next thing I know, we've got 65 vendors <laughs> over three days was not expecting that in a million years, not expecting that. And I was stressing out. Um, Colleen Boyd, uh, she's also in Northern Michigan of oh, a touch of bunny. She raises Angora rabbit. She's very well known here in the Great Lakes area. Um, she has absolutely beautiful Angora rabbits. She offered to help me with scheduling because I'm like, I can't do this. I'm trying to teach people about going live on Facebook and, and get everything organized. So she was amazing. She took over the scheduling and being the contact person to get everybody lined up. And sure enough, two weeks later, <laughs> we, were, we were all live. And then the messages started pouring in. Um, I think at that time, we maybe only had about 1,500, 2,000 people in the Woolen Fiber Arts group. The, the public group, um, but the messages started pouring in <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> no, just 1,500, is that all? Just a bit. Oh, and the messages started pouring in both from people that had made purchases and the vendors. Um, I had a call, I had a call. She called me from one of the vendors and she's like, Ellen, she goes, I've needed this surgery for six months. And I did not have the money to meet my deductible. Because of that sale, I actually sold out. Because of that sale, I can now go and have that surgery done. And I'm like, ah! I may have done a live video from my chicken coop. <laughs> and well, that just brings it up. group. Right there. <laughs> that just brings it right home where the heart of it is. Exactly. That this, that this community, and it's like you really are affecting people right down to the ground with these. That these makers and these vendors, that really is not just their livelihood, but their healthcare. Yes, exactly. And it was like, and they're like, "Are we going to do more? Are we going to do more?" And I'm, it was twelve hours, twenty four vendors. <laughs> you know, that was the original plan, and. But hearing from so many, and well, hearing, work, right? You know, I mean, it sounds like you had to quit your job to yes. continue. Yeah, I worked as a production knitter at the time for five years. I worked as a production knitter, and there was no way I could not do both. I tried 
for a couple of months and there was just absolutely no way that I could do it. Um, and so I had to give that up. She could easily go find another knitter. But there were only, you know, um, I'd already made those connections. We were already growing the group and it, it, they needed help. They needed somebody, you know, that I could be of service. That's really the way I looked at it from day one is um, how, how can I be of service? How can I help? And I just happened to have the knowledge and the time at that moment. And what's been so amazing is that we've had so many vendors, you know, come in and out. I think we've helped, oh, I believe it's over 400 vendors now. Um, you know, and some only come in for a sale or two and others uh, keep coming back month after month. We always make sure that we bring new vendors in every single month and give them a chance um, so how that do they you, can build that customer base. How do you reach out to new vendors and, and really keep that diversifying of, um, of makers? Reaching out into groups constantly. Farming groups, maker groups, dyer groups, putting it out there. We've reached out to, um, you know, different organizations in the fiber arts, uh, in Instagram accounts, not even just on Facebook, you know, saying, hey, here's what we're doing. We would love to have people apply. Um, in the beginning, we started out, we were doing 90 vendors once a month. And so we kind of split it up. What we found to make it, I mean, we're putting on a full-scale fiber festival every month, once a month. It's just crazy, crazy busy. And, and it took us a while to figure out, you know, how to do it, how to make selection to be as easy as, as possible, the amount of work. Because we are a Facebook group, we do emphasize their Facebook page. You know, what are they doing on their Facebook page? How are they interacting? We don't care how many followers they have. That, that is not, we don't care at all. But how are they trying to reach out? Um, what knowledge do they have? And we are more than willing to help share our knowledge with them about growing their audience. Um, and it, it's interesting because we've had vendors come in that have 5,000 followers. And then we've had vendors come in with 100 followers. And you know what? The vendors with 100 followers usually are more successful, which is interesting. Why? What we've noticed, it's not always the case, but what we've noticed is those vendors with 100 followers interact more within the group. They're in their posting, they're in their sharing, they're in their commenting and their enthusiasm. But, you know, somebody comes in and shares a project that they're working on. And it's not about going in there, hey, buy this. No, it's about true community all month long. Sales promotional stuff is only at the very end of the month. The other three and a half weeks, four weeks is just sharing our enthusiasm, sharing our knowledge. Um, we do demos and tutorials and dye videos and bat making and all the fun stuff to help encourage people to expand their knowledge, expand their skills, share with us, teach us something. It's not just about what we do. We want to see what everybody else does. It's also kind of a using what you have sort of thing, I think, too. You know, even though ultimately everyone is trying to go ahead and sell, it's also seeing what someone else is doing and going, oh, I can use this up in my stash, too, and and doing that. I think the other thing with, like, it's really interesting that you said that the, the lower follower people do better um, because something that Kat and I actually talk about a lot is, slow growth with your social media following is actually not a bad thing because the followers that you have are the people that really want to be there and support you. So it stands to reason that those people, probably those hundred people that are their followers are actually there because they absolutely want to and weren't there just because they did a giveaway or something, you know, I mean, when you look at, some of these accounts that have 10,000 followers, they might only have a couple hundred meaningful followers. So, you know, everyone in your audience on the, in the group 
is there because they want to be too. Absolutely. It really even, it sounds like it doesn't, it's not just that you're curating vendors and makers. This, the group itself lends itself to curating the, your audience to that particular maker who is open to the learning and the growing and the community. And it really is it's very, it's a very approachable page from a um, observer standpoint. So it's just so neat to see that grow even when we can't do the face-to-face, -face, even when we can only, only do the Zoom. <laughs> One of the things that I've noticed um, with many of the vendors that have come back month after month, many of them are teachers. Many of them um, normally teach at the different fiber festivals or they have the heart of a teacher. And that really, really does make a difference because you, you can tell that at the core of it, they want to excite other people. They want to inspire other people. And, uh, <clears throat> What are those moments that I think that I probably smiled or laughed the most to myself? And I won't mention her name, but she's a knitter. She's not a spinner at all. <clears throat> and she's very set in her ways. And I just absolutely love her uh, to pieces. And she'll know who I'm talking about when she hears this. But um, she's never had any interest in being a spinner. And about six months in, she's like, you know what? I'm actually tempted to go get a spindle. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked, I like, I think I did a little happy dance at home when she told me that because even though I've only known her through Wafa, we've become so close that I never in a million years thought I would hear her say that. Um, but it was so, it, it was, yeah, I did a happy dance. That's like a magical <laughs> moment of, aha, I win. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about I win. Spending I, I mean, much more of a niche versus the knitter and crochet group. But it was one of those that, hey, we inspired somebody. We inspired somebody that never was open to that before. But she's been there. She's watched. And it sparked something within her. Even if she never goes and buys a spindle, it did spark something. And that, I mean, oh, uh, yeah, that's one of those things that, um, you know, it come from the mentality of uh, when I was actually out and working in the business world, you know, the mentality of, you know what, my goal today is just to make one person smile. Well, we're not seeing each other face to face, so we can't do that right now. So my mentality right now is, can we inspire somebody? Is there somebody that I can inspire today? That's kind of my mentality. That's the thing that I repeat to myself, my little mantra, I guess you could say. Every day when I get up and I, whether I go comment in Wafa, I'm on Instagram, whatever it is, is there somebody that I can inspire today? Well, and it's, it's about, not just about inspiring, but also even if, even if she never did pick up that spinning, she has a greater appreciation for what goes into the spinning. And I think you're probably seeing a lot of that, you know, like people that have never sampled, but now they're seeing other people sampling and realizing the value of it or, um, you know, just, oh, I didn't realize that's why hand spun was so expensive <laughs> because of how much goes exactly. in. But do, well, um, do explain sampling, Emily, because for the layman who see, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, <laughs> Just like how people resist swatching for a sweater or, you know, like finding your gauge or is this fiber going to bloom a lot, like puff up a lot when I wash the hand spun yarn that I did or, you know, just like how different things behave. And I, I think people, I know I, for the longest time, was that person that was like, I just want to make the thing. I want to do the thing. And, and I don't necessarily have a project in mind, but then you have people sharing projects too. I mean, I watched um, Alana Wilcox make that uh, Wizard of Oz shawl and it was the, like the, the Wizard of Oz shawl. Yeah. I mean, she, like every section, uh, well, she, it was a Stephen West pattern, but she did every section was like a different 
theme from the Wizard of Oz. So there's like a section that had the yellow brick road and there's a section that had um, the ruby slippers were in there, you know, like and flying monkeys and the, yeah, it was just, it was so cool to see. I just the meant tornadoes. <laughs> yes, the tornadoes and like, cause she did the little shrinky dinks at the end too. <laughs> That was really fun, like the little shrinky dinks with the to symbolize some of the things. But just that that piece of knowing what sampling is, like you said, like swatching, because um, coming into spinning when I did, I, I had no idea I was that person. I sometimes still am that person that's just like, I just feel like spinning and I don't want to plan it out. And so sometimes I just do. So I guess I'm curious how if someone wanted to share knowledge, teach, or vend, how would they approach you about it? We have a new team that is working on a program for teachers. So they're in the middle of rolling that out. Okay. Um, I cannot do all the things. <laughs> I wish I could, um, but I can't. So we had somebody that, I have an amazing team. It, none of this would would be possible without the amazing people that have volunteered to help. And I can't say that enough. And I can't believe it took this long into us, this discussion for me to say that. Um, and there's too many names to mention, but we have a customer team. They're the ones that kind of watch the Wool and Fiber Arts group. They make sure that they're answering questions. They let new people into the group, make sure the questions have been answered. Um, it, and we have like hundreds of people asking a day some days to join um and there's a lot of spamming in there so it's it's they've taken on a lot it's yeah, not it's just a few minutes sort, a day sort yes. through all of the the yeah. slump, if you will exactly and i mean we've had people try to share their sales into our group <laughs> believe it or not and not fiber not just fiber arts but all different crafts and stuff because we have such a large group that are buying. They've even tried to sell to share sales into our group in the middle of one of our sales. So it would look like they were one of our vendors. There's stuff like that going on all the time. And we're fairly strict with what is in the group. Um, we only allow vendors to, to join with their business pages okay. that, so that you know who's a vendor and who isn't a vendor. Mm. Um, and we don't allow web links we don't allow sharing any promotional. Now you can share anything that is educational in there. We want to see all the educational stuff, um, but no promotions. My reason for that is we don't want it to start feeling like a used car lot, <laughs> you know, with sales all month long. We really want the promotion and sales just to be that one weekend, that one week a month, because you lose the community feel if all it is is sell, sell, sell. There's other groups for that where it's more appropriate. Um, so for people who did want to be both part of the sharing knowledge on the page, do they just join, ask to join the page and ask the questions? How would they become a vendor for the actual sale week? Like what is, what's the process there for an individual that is interested, but might be a little bit gun shy, if you will? Yep. We have a website, mm -hmm. willandfiberarts.com. Uh, the brand, there's an application process. With the application, there's information in it that you can read through, and it, it's a Google form, so it will send you the confirmation with some of that information also. A lot of people will send me an email and ask, and there's, there's a video on our business page, which is different from the group, you know, the way Facebook is, um, that has a video that talks about vendor selection. So I normally will send them some information and send them a link to that video so that they can watch and know what we're looking for when we make the selection, the Monday after sale, that application goes live on our, our website. Okay. It's up for two weeks. So you can email me. The email is wafa, so W-A-F-A at woolenfiberarts.com. And if anybody emails me, then I, there's a list of information that I send back. Mm -hmm. um, but that application goes live the Monday after a show. So the May application actually just ended because that was up for two weeks. The June, we're doing a Rothley sale in June. Um, we're gonna do three Rothley sales this year. So we already had one, it's one a quarter basically. And then we're not doing anything the last quarter of the year. We take December off. 
We want our vendors, we want our audience to be able to enjoy their families, enjoy their times. So we do things like free giveaways. We share patterns. We give back to the community all month long and we don't do a sale. But uh, our second raw fleece sale will be in June. That application is up right now. And that is on the website. Uh, for the raw fleece sale, we do it a little bit different. It's Our normal sales are the last full weekend of the month. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday all have to be within that month. Say Sunday is the following month. Nope, we'll do it the weekend before. That's just the pattern that we followed so that we can be consistent. And so that everybody kind of, when we already have a graphic out with all of our sales and the dates, and the, I think the themes are even mentioned on there for the entire year. But the raw fleece sale. How do you come up with the theme? Has that been February or March? I don't remember. Um, themes, we have a theme for every single month. So April was spring into, creati uh, spring into creativity. And our focus for April has been alpaca. So the, they're doing demonstrations. They're giving information, the history of alpaca here in the United States. Last month was the Angora rabbit. And the theme was Alice in Fiberland. Um, next month is May. Now I'm very excited about this because I am a big giant nerd and I married a nerd. And the theme for May is may the fiber be with you. <laughs> I'm such a nerd. That's so fabulous. <laughs> and That's let me tell you, I plan on going live every single day in May and I will have a different Star Wars shirt on every single day. <laughs> Um, my husband may have a Star Wars tattoo. My husband may be the type that travels out to celebration <laughs> and volunteers while he's there. <laughs> One of these days, my husband so, definitely, yeah. like we've, we've <clears throat> talked about when and how, but um, yeah, I, I know they can't see this, but I'm going to show you my, oh, that's awesome. my pencil. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. One of my Christmas that's gifts this awesome. year was matching t-shirts for my husband and I, and mine has the princess Leia that says, I love you. And then his has Han Solo. I know. Oh my gosh. Ellen, we have those. <laughs> yeah. That was a Christmas gift for my we, oldest. We, we got them in <laughs> Disney World when we were there with my family. My husband and I have them. <laughs> <laughs> my oldest lives in Orlando. He oh, moved down there for college. He just graduated. Um, yeah, during the pandemic, our oldest graduated from college. He went to school for computer animation. And uh, so he still lives in Orlando. And then our second graduated from high school during the pandemic. <laughs> and then we had one in kindergarten when all of this happened. Um, so he's in first grade now. But yeah, my oldest, uh, he went to Disney and he found those shirts. And so he bought those for us for Christmas, because yes, we are that family. I also have life-size cardboard figures of different Star Wars. Yeah. So oh, it's going to be fun. But do you put your knitting samples on them? No. Okay. That's only because they're downstairs in the basement still in plastic because <laughs> my husband collects them. Ah. So I'm not allowed to play with them. Well, I told him, you know what? They've been down there for 20 years. They're coming upstairs this month, <laughs> which is funny. Um, in September, I've only participated as a vendor a couple of times just because it's so busy. There's so much work because we're doing everything in such a short period of time. Uh, but I participated in September was the other time that I participated as a vendor. And I did an entire Back to the Future thing. So all of my colorways were Back to the Future. Like, you're so hot. <laughs> Uh, gigawatts and flux capacitor and you know all of my colorways were after well my seven-year-old has grown up with this so he is into all the things that the teenagers are and my two oldest were also very into robotics during high school and uh, my oldest our school had started up a brand new robotics team the year that he was a junior I think that was the very first year our school had a robotics team. He came up with the name of the robotics team that the team selected and they're the gigawatts. <laughs> and so they have a flux capacitor that is their logo for the team. So for the, when I participated as a vendor, I had everything set up. I had DeLoreans everywhere. I was wearing, uh, yeah, 
Yep. You really, man, you yeah. go all, nerds. There's no halfway. <laughs> well, and it sounds like there's no halfway with any of the things that you do. Well, the thing is, and what I've tried to um, emphasize is, you know what? This last year has been really, really stressful for everybody. Yeah. And you know what? It goes back to that. Can I make somebody smile? It's so great. It's not about buying from me. Can you come watch and just be smiling and laughing at the end of it? That is awesome. You know, it's not about supporting me financially. Tubber sale. I had a wardrobe malfunction. I was wearing, okay, so I did the, it was a party theme. Oh, no. For September, it was a party theme. And I'm like, you know what? I have to participate because we had just watched Star Wars or we had just watched uh, Back to the Future for like the 500th time. And I'm like, I'm going to throw an enchantment under the sea dance party. Do you know who Beth Shearer is? Is it Smith Shearer, Shearer Smith? Um, she was very big into the fiber arts for many years, but now she sews. And she makes kind of the 50s, 60s inspired skirts and dresses. Yeah, she does a lot of skirts. Yes. So um, I know her. She's from here in Michigan. And I'm thinking, I've wanted one of those dresses for like 20 years. And I sew. I made my own wedding dress. But I've never made that style dress for myself. Like, you know what? I talked to her and I sent her a picture. Like, can you make this dress for me? It was gorgeous absolutely gorgeous and I'm like I'm gonna throw an enchantment under the sea dance and this is how I can justify buying this dress that I've been dreaming about for so many years and it's got the little spaghetti straps and it's you know the 50s um, 50s 60s I don't know I'm not that into it but um style in the first five minutes of my show that spaghetti strap broke (laughs) And I'm like instantly, you know, arms down to my side, trying to, I'm like, I gotta be on camera live for 25 more minutes. And I'm just praying that that top doesn't fall down. But oh. Beth did such an amazing job. It was so well fitted to me that, yeah, I guess I didn't really have to stress out as much as I did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but that, that like, you know, that rising blood pressure for a minute there. Yes, and I'm live. <laughs> And I'm like, I'm Ellen, so everybody knows me, so I can't freak out. I have to, you know, I have to practice what I preach. <laughs> and even though all I want to do is duck out from underneath the camera and go hide. But um, yeah, that was that was one of the fun things. But yeah, just trying to make people smile and laugh to bring some joy into their life. Because it's stressful. It, it's tough. Um, our lives have completely changed over the last year. And we don't have those connections every day. You know, most of us aren't going to work and interacting with coworkers. Some of us still are, but many of us aren't. But even if we are going to work, it's not quite the same. It's not the same. And we have all these worries and concerns. So if I can make somebody laugh, if I can entertain them for a little bit and just help them to have a little bit better of a day, you know, you can't ask for much more than that. Um, Earlier when you said uh, you kind of started off talking about how you know, you wanted to help local vendors and everything and how these farms really rely on the money from these sales for, you know, their hay and everything. And um, I thought it was really, it's there's already Rothley's for sale groups on Facebook, but the fact that you have these specific sales for these fleece sales is such a nice outlet, I'm sure, for them. And the thing is, is like they aren't able to sell their fleeces at shows and people like me aren't able to buy their fleeces at shows right now. So that's a really incredible thing. I wonder, see, I'm sitting here thinking, well, gosh, are you going to want to continue this even after these shows start picking back up and, and doing that? Because I think there's still a demand for it. Like, where do you see the future of WAFA going? I think there's a demand. Um, one of the things that we have found through the last year with, I mean, we've had so many amazing people reach out to us, uh, sending us emails, sending us messages. There is a group of the population that for one reason or another cannot travel to fiber, fiber festivals. Maybe it's too far away. Maybe they have a farm to run and they can't leave for an entire day. Maybe they have young children at home. Maybe they're not physically or for health reasons able to travel to shows. And so 
this gives them a way to participate, to be a part of the fiber community in a way that they could not before. And I, do, I think that is a wonderful thing. Even myself um, with a farm, with a young child, I was lucky to get to one, two sales a year just to visit as somebody that was purchasing or taking classes, uh, partially because financial, the other part being, um, you know, having all the animals and a young child. <laughs> uh, my husband was willing, but it was hard, you know, even just across the state, you know, it's going to take me three, four hours to go to Michigan Fiber Festival and the three or four hours back. Then you add on walking around, you know, in a full day, you're tired, the driving, it's a very, very long day. And so not everybody has that where they're at. Well, a lot of people can't leave their farms for that amount of time too. So the, the opening up of being able to do it online, it's, there is like kind of that disconnect between farms that they can't get away to go to a show with the low tech option of selling, but a lot of them are still resistant to using the technology. So it's really good that the, I, Facebook has a lot of very extremely problematic things about it, but Facebook is something that most people are on now, whether they want to be or not. And I think that that's really brought it back around and you've provided a really beautiful space on there for a wide variety of fiber artists. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add today as we wrap up? One of the other things that is really important to me, now speaking as Ellen of Zephyr Creek Farm versus Ellen of Wallen Fiber Arts Group, is supporting the other local farms in supporting these local mills uh, and our local yarn stores. You know, in the very beginning, we had quite a few local yarn stores just coming on and talking and going live so that we would know how um, I had Joan Sheridan of Heritage. Oh, gosh, I don't remember how it goes. Weeding and spinning. Uh, that's my local yarn store. She's over an hour away from me, but that's my local yarn store. So right in the beginning, she was participating those first few months as she was trying to transition in her own business to figure out how to make it work for her. You know, we were reaching out to these people. Um, because we, we need each other. We need each other. It's very important to me to support all these different avenues, not just the farmers, but the mills and the local yarn stores and the makers and, and all of that. So one of the things that I have done um, is we're trying to develop relationships with the mills, the mills that are buying from our local farms. Um, so that, um, because I die and my flock is small and manageable because it's just me. My husband is not a farmer. He, he uh, supports me. There's no way I'd be able to do this without him, but I'm the one that's doing all the things. Um, and so I need to keep my flock small and manageable, but I also want to have a viable business. So one of the decisions that I have made is that, yes, I will buy and, and dye fiber and yarn, but I only do that from U.S. grown and processed fibers. Now, I may throw something like silk in, a small percentage, but the base of it needs to be here in the U.S. Um, I'm not, and, and that's not the right business plan for everyone, but we're trying to develop some of these relationships so that the dyers that would like to do that, or they would like to add lines, they may not be able to do it with their business plan, but they may want to start adding a little bit of that in if possible. So one of the next things that I personally am trying to do, and we want to make that also available to the WAFA vendors, um, is building those relationships with the mills. You know, and that's what we're all about. All of this, what you just said, that's, that's what <laughs> we really want to get well, out. You, yeah, you had April on. Uh, I loved listening to her, that episode. Um, I absolutely adore April. <laughs> We've talked a few times this week. Um, and so I've been sourcing my fiber. If it's not grown here on my farm, um, I've purchased actually from multiple WAFA vendors now and sent stuff to the mill. Um, so I've done quite a few rovings. We've got Mitten State, Sheep and Wool. There's quite a few small mills that participate in WAFA. But we're also reaching out to the larger mills to see if maybe some of our dyers and stuff could work together. Yep. so that we could have pricing that's affordable for both the mill and the dyers. That's actually and one I'd really like to see that grow 
as we go. That when I think of Gotha, like five years from now, that really is yes. We'll keep doing shows as long as people want them. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I think of Waffle five years from now, ten years from now, that's what I would want our legacy to be. That we're working with those small farms, we're working with our U.S. mills, and we're able to have a partnership um, and have more stuff available that is affordable uh, and profitable for the dyers, for the mills, for the farmers. You know, the wool being sold for, you know, three cents a pound, 30 cents a pound, that's not a viable business. That's not. So what can we do is the question I ask myself to make it affordable and available to the average person, not just to the knitters and crocheters, but to the average American household. How can we get more natural fibers, natural products that are U.S. grown and made into everybody's home? That, get this into people's homes so that when we can't or don't know where to find things, it might be the little podcast that slips in. So I really thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today and the whole story your story and your farm story and your family story and Wafa story and (laughs) your um vision it's just it's such a lovely thing I we really really appreciate you taking the time with us today especially with all of the things that you're doing yep I'm actually going to thank you tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) and in your spare time homeschooling why not (laughs) in homeschooling yes (laughs) Yep. Well, you wouldn't want to get more. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Ellen. And this has been such a delight. And this has been the Fiber Variety Hour with Ellen Zawada from Wool and Fiber Arts. And Zephyr Creek Farm. Thank you. This edition of Fiber Variety Hour was sponsored by the Tip of the Mitt Fiber Fair in beautiful Petoskey, Michigan. To find out more, visit tipofthemittfiberfair.com.